Hi, and welcome to In Conversation, an interview series exploring creativity, diaspora, and transformation. I am Reshma Razvi, a producer and media maker inspired by the character of Shahrazad in 1001 Nights and her storytelling resistance. So I started the Shahrazad Squad. Join me as I talk to some of these Sherazads with a small s, the women and non-binary creatives, cultural producers, and change agents, each engaged in transformational work. After all, stories plus sisterhood save the kingdom. What makes a story? Why are we ever interested to read the next sentence? How do you frame something? What is the rhythm? What feels compelling? How do you work with story, craft, storytelling? Do you find the story you want to tell? Do you discover story? You can only really discover those things in reading, writing, and sharing. I believe in the power of the witness. That when there is a witness, I will say different things in community than I will to myself. The language changes because everyone risks something. The squad had its origins in theater with a company called Cal Shakes. So performance and drama have always been near and dear to our heart. We're lucky to have the next two interviews feature performers in our squad. I sat down with Sheetal Gandhi and Denmo Ibrahim to discuss performances that took place in 2020 and the role that family and community play in their work. First up is Denmo. Denmo Ibrahim is a storyteller. She weaves stories as a playwright, actor, educator, and a meditation instructor. I invited her to speak with me about the play she wrote for Marin Theater called Brilliant Mind. The conversation covered a lot of ground, but we kept returning to the same theme, the healing power of storytelling and the creative process. This is something many artists and creatives can relate to, I'm sure. And for diasporic communities in particular, art can be a way to navigate the uncertainties and anxieties around migration, identity, and community. I was born in New York, in Staten Island. My parents immigrated, I think, in the 70s late 70s. So we were born here, but all our family was still there in Cairo, Cairo, Egypt. I think in those early years, my parents were already separating. So we were having that sort of experience of visiting our father on the weekend, staying with my mom most of the time. And then for the rest of my childhood, we were raised by my mom, a single mom working at the World Trade Center, actually, for most of that time. But I had these like really powerful experiences as a young person and then a teenager of visiting my family in Cairo. And as a kid to be exposed from New York or Princeton, New Jersey, that's where I did like middle school and high school into what I considered third world country at that time, which I would never think of Egypt as that now, but um, just very different. And that made such a huge impression on me. It still does. You know, as a young person, I I guess it never dawned on me that there were people in other parts of the world that had totally different priorities. Hearing the call to prayer five times a day, 
in Arabic, the way that the language itself is adorned with blessings and prayers and questions on your health before the nitty gritty of work and things took me years to discover what that difference was, but I could feel it already. It has always influenced me, I think, even in business and in art, this sense of tradition and connecting to something older than we are as a blueprint to be able to create and move forward from. I'm curious if we could go back to December of last year when I saw some of your social media posts and and realized you're going through this huge thing. And I'm sorry to say, when I first saw it, I was like, is this real? Or is she talking about a play at that time even? Because it seemed so intense so quickly, like from there to get to this point where you stage a public play like six months later seems remarkable slash crazy. Do you mind just kind of taking us into that world for a minute? It was dramatic and it was a a really sort of deep rabbit hole. I was already working on Brilliant Mind. And I had just started writing. That project was about a father and son. And the son learns of his father's death and goes home and learns who he was through his father's death by excavating his home because he didn't have a relationship with him. And then my father died. My brother and I didn't have a relationship with my father. When my father died, I put aside the fictional story I had been writing. In a lot of the work I've done, there are many themes that I continue to come back to because they're curious to me. And one of this is this absent parent. I don't intend to, but I kind of keep coming back to this piece of this absent figure. So it wasn't strange that I was looking at a father. The piece Brilliant Mind was about mental health in immigrant communities. And the way I was going to explore that story was through a father's death. The son sort of has a coming of age at 40. And he kind of reconciles like why he's had some struggles in his own life because of his lineage of his father and that piece that he didn't know. And then my father dies and it was a lot of strange feelings. I thought I had time. I thought he would reach out to me. I'd seen him when I was a child and then again when I was 19 and then he passed away and I was 43. I got there the night before the funeral. It was a really extraordinary experience. I was living the life I was writing about, but it wasn't actually about a father and son. It was actually about my brother and I. That there was sort of something happening between my brother and I that we were sort of being confronted with the differences between us. And of course, we're both in his house. I had never seen his house. We're discovering all this stuff. I find a photo album of all of the pictures of us as children. I had never seen myself as a kid. And like that changes you. If you had never seen a picture of yourself as a child, like I, there's a couple, we have a couple, but I didn't have like an album, you know? And so we found these two books when my mom was getting married, you know, when I was first born, them together. And it was like a a revelation to discover that I was a really happy child. And it just felt like these pieces were kind of fitting back in. He had been married two more times. And we also found that we had a half sister who's half my age and also a half brother who's 16 years old living in Cairo. And then a 21 year old daughter And she was raised in Egypt, but going to school in Boston. You didn't know any of this until you 
until we were there. And so it was not only the reckoning of a death in the family of a person you don't know, that's enough, but also the added layer that he had two other families. My brother and I, you know, I mean, we were like a, a bit in shock. All of this happened. And I was like, well, I think this is the story that I want to explore. But it also became an opportunity for me to place my healing within a structure, which is, has its own challenges. I, I, I don't necessarily recommend it, but I, I do think I was able to like unpack and explore a level of like depth in writing around death and family that I don't think I would have been brave enough to do had I not been actually confronted with some of those questions. I mean, I've been a writer for a long time. I write lots of different things, some plays, but not always. And there's a level of the dialogue in Brilliant Mind that I feel very proud of because they kind of fell out of me. They are the questions I am asking. And I think that is what makes it really pop. So I learned a lot artistically by exploring something that was deeply personal and not just approaching it as a creative project. I could have just written a journal, but knowing my own particularisms around phrasing and language and refinement and storytelling, I make myself projects in order to do the thing instead of just doing the thing. I relate to the task of creating projects to try and figure things out. But do you think you would have written about it if you hadn't already started A Brilliant Mind and were sort of in that space of writing and thinking about the sort of father figure? No, absolutely not. There's, there's no reason. I didn't want to do it. Let me create a, something that doesn't have to do with too much personal vulnerability <laughs> and let me just make something cool and then walk away. I would love to create. I would love, I love that. But right now I have my heart on my sleeve. I'm a Capricorn. So I have a real problem with pulling out of things that I've committed to. And I committed to them. And I knew it was about a Middle Eastern family. I knew I wanted to explore the Arab American community. I knew I wanted to explore first generation experience. And all I could think about was this unraveling of what was happening with me. And so I just sort of was like, boom. And I channeled it. And I worked constantly constantly. And part of that was because it, the process was so fragmented. You know, it wasn't like I was approaching a play. I was rushing, running towards what is this question and who are these people? And I got to write a father figure in the next iteration. I will probably push him much further. His arc to me is the facade of a charming man who's stuck in this liminal space after death, but before the afterlife, where he gets to watch the 24 hours before his burial and be pressed, pushed to finally say the truest words he could say. I wanted to be there for every single time. True, true, true. Family is the hardest part. I wish I could have. If, if I would, I would have. I was always there for you. False, false, false. And then he finally finds the words. I wanted to be there for you every single time. Like the whole friggin' play is about him, the father kind of putting down his deepest apology for family and finally making family between the brother and the sister. That hits hard. I lost my dad suddenly. He had a heart attack. So much of what you just said in, in your play, the gulfs that are there in life, sometimes they're just wide and gaping mm -hmm. after a moment so final death and then at the same time for me i mean i'm still 
processing and working through it, it's really hard to lose someone when there's things that you wish you could have said. What do you do with that? I, I felt really grateful for, to you, artist, artist, having made something that can reflect that for some of us who have lived through some of that journey. It's interesting, you know, as I was sort of unpacking my own feelings, the story was emerging of what these characters might say. And it wasn't just me. I was interviewing other people in the Arab American community. I was hearing their stories about fathers and daughters and the culture and the religion and being the firstborn here and girls and boys. And wherever there was resonance, I was like, boom, this is not just me. That was where I felt like I could have the distance to weave in their stories too. And my hope was that this could be kind of a collage of some of these aspects within the community that we ask. But also through that gulf, I think generationally, there's just so, so many gulfs and bridges and divides. It's a tremendous, huge task. One of the thing that struck me in the play is there's so much in the relationships between the siblings. And there's a lot that the character Dina is trying to explain to her brother about this sort of patriarchal reality that she faced and grew up in. And he's just like, what do you mean it was like that? What are you talking about? You know, from the prom to the neighbors. I love the examples of just how those gendered kind of experiences really shape your memories and stories. And this is the thing that I think is really interesting. Being a grown woman, you know, when you have siblings, do you have siblings, Rachel? Do yeah, I have sisters. Okay. Sisters. But when you have siblings, there's this feeling of this person has shared your life with you. Yeah. And so you kind of like default to childish ways very quickly because it's sort of I was a part of your possibly the most time you've ever spent to it with each other was in that time. I think that this unconditional love is this willingness to show up in the most difficult times. The willingness to show up in the most difficult times. Yeah, it's not I love you if I love you, but I love you when. And I think that in the deeper level, it felt to me, too, that she was bringing to the space this sort of anger or this piece that needed healing or acknowledgement, that element of her as a character dealing with that patriarchal upbringing and some of those tensions. You've mentioned some of them that you've gone through in your, yourself, and I'm curious about them coming up now at this point in your life. I mean, it's interesting. It has the umbrella of the sibling relationship that in Dina and Yusuf's storyline, and that's where we hear that divide. If you're asking about me, I feel that line more as a brown woman in America, as a Middle Eastern woman in America, I'm in places of leadership. You know what I mean? I'm not a chorus girl. And so because of that, I'm often confronted with people, gatekeepers, where I feel that I have this, and you know, it's something I'm still unpacking, but I have a little bit of this fight. I have a fight in me. Other people that have a different background that don't look like me don't have that fight because they're not fighting. I have places in my life where I feel very successful, that I've achieved a certain thing. But I also feel that there are challenges in order to open up and center different conversations. There's a lot of like uphill. And I, I think that's the part that I'm really examining is why? What are those uphill moments about? Is it about, you know, having people of color in places of leadership? Is it about being a woman in a male-dominated society? Is it about being outspoken and not playing to the social cues of how certain things are navigated? 
I don't know the answers to those, but I think those are the things that I sort of wrestle with because I have two for-profit businesses. And then I also have a professional career as a playwright and as an actor. And then I'm starting this other performance company. So I think there's all these places where I feel like I'm pushing the edge and that edge sometimes comes with a bit of resistance. It's probably why I'm a Buddhist and a meditation instructor and also spend so much time in retreat and in practice because I feel like in some ways my life doesn't feel one of ease. So I create that in every other opportunity, in my marriage, in my home, in my time away. If you're an innovator or a pioneer, it's not going to be easy, you know. <laughs> you teach meditation. You've meditated for a really long time. I know in my brief experiences, what was tremendous was sort of a practice that illuminated how much your head and mind is talking to you and creating stories. And in a way, it's the practice of not being as attached to that. In a meditative space, you're undoing narratives. And then in the writer space, you're constructing them. I'm really curious about nonlinear narratives. Narratives that sort of like weave in and out. I think this can be more challenging and takes more time. It's pretty compelling because you're like, how did that lead to that? Why? How did that happen? I always think as a reader, you get one sentence at a time. And so you have to hook the reader by the next sentence. And that's all you get. You have to find the reason to move forward. Thanks for listening. That was Denmo Ibrahim in conversation with Reshma Resby. You can learn more about Denmo at denmoibrahim.com. Her current production, Baba, is on from April 21st to May 7th at Amphibian Stage in Fort Worth, Texas. You can learn more and purchase tickets at amphibianstage.com. And I'm Sonia Mehrmand, co-producer and editor of this podcast. If you've enjoyed these interviews so far, please subscribe through your favorite podcast app. And now back to Reshma. The link to our website and socials is all in the notes, along with more information on our interviewees. Congratulations on Shatarizad Squad and getting it up into its own little world. If you're interested in joining the squad, and if you identify as a Swanaso woman, non-binary, creative, cultural producer, or change agent, you can find information on our website. Again, shahrazadsquad.org. Did I mention we have some wonderful conversation cards available for purchase? These artist design cards feature fun and meaningful prompts that connect small groups of people from families at dinner to a team meeting at the office. They're a great way to learn more about the people in your life and share stories. Each deck is $25 and fully goes to support squad activities and continue our project. You can find the link in the notes or again on our website. I produced the episode and it was edited and mixed by the wonderful Sonia Mermand. The theme music is by squad member Naima Shalhoub. Other music is by Raining Jane. The squad is executive produced by Cal Shakes and funded in part by the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Art. We thank our supporters, our funders, and you, our listeners. 
Thanks for your support. And thanks again for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. 